You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. Happy Easter, eFree. Christ is risen. Amen. I would invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning, and we're going to read actually two passages. The first one is in John chapter 20, the second in Luke chapter 24, and out of reverence for the Word of God, I would invite you to stand as we read together. John chapter 20, verses 19 to 21. Actually, I'm going to read to 22. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Then flip back to Luke chapter 24. Verse 36 begins. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And this is the word of God. Please be seated. You know, it's really hard to believe the number of phobias that exist, probably a lot more since COVID, but even before, and how strange some of them really are. For example, there's a phobia called palatophobia. You want to know what that is? It's the fear of bald people. (laughs) Yeah. I purposely didn't show Myron's face. Newton said that for every reaction there is an equal and opposite reaction and for every fear there is an equal and opposite fear which is why we have trichopathophobia which is the fear of hair which is fine unless you're Rapunzel, right? I think my favorite one of all of the phobias is this one and I really think that we should read it together on three. <laughs> one, two, three. <laughs> 
you got it right the first time. That's <laughs> terrific. I, <laughs> that was just for my entertainment. Any idea what this fear is? Yeah, fear of big words. <laughs> Some fears are just, they're just silly, aren't they? Others are, are far more common, like those we find in the disciples who only days after Jesus' death are afraid in at least three different ways and for reasons that I imagine we can relate to. Let's think about what's going on inside of their heads. Jim Collins, in his great leadership book called Good to Great, differentiated between level five and level four leaders. He said that organizations will not move forward well unless they have level five leadership. And then in an article in Harvard Business Review, he wrote that one of the characteristics that separates level five leaders, great leaders, from level four leaders, mediocre ones, is that level five leaders set up companies to succeed when they, the leader, are gone. He said, and I quote, as one level five leader said, I want to look out from my porch and see the company as one of the greatest companies of the world and be able to say, I used to work there. By contrast, level four leaders fail to set up a company for enduring success. After all, what better testament to your personal greatness than that the place falls apart when you leave? From what we have read this morning, it appears as if Jesus did not read Jim's book. Wouldn't you say? Jim might have read Jesus' book, but Jesus hadn't read Jim's book. Because he died. He left no written succession plan. The movement seems almost ready to fall apart. I mean, those who were left did not have the strength to lead without him there, so they had no plan, they had no purpose, they had questionable skills, and all of that momentum that you see in before Jesus' death, I mean, it's all but evaporated. And people who are overwhelmed in ways like these can be rendered frozen by the fear of failure. I don't have the resources. I don't have the training. I don't have the skills. I don't know what to do. I cannot do as good a job as the last person did. If you've ever filled big shoes or followed a legend or felt inadequately trained for the role that you're in, you know the fear of, you know the fear of failure. I'm afraid that everything will fall apart on my watch. Fear of failure, you may well know what that feels like. I have a little inkling of it myself right now. <laughs> they were afraid for another reason, though, as well. The original 12 had now become the unoriginal 11 disciples because of Judas' betrayal of Jesus and subsequent suicide. Now, when you, we can just read this as facts, or we can think about the impact of that on the disciples who remained. Judas had been with them all for three, three and a half years. During that time, they had traveled and ministered. They had laughed and lunched and lived together. They trusted him to the point where they said, you, you take the money and be the treasure of this group. But now their trusted friend had betrayed Jesus and them by association. 
Questions must have paced back and forth in their minds like caged animals. What did he tell the chief priests about us? Are our families safe? Is there another traitor among us, and if so, whom? Betrayal can affect us and affect our way of thinking that way, can't it? You're working with a friend on a project. You're working on it together, and they rush ahead and publish the results and take all the credit. You've exchanged vows with your marriage partner and then discover that he or she has been cheating on you all along. Maybe you've had a friendship where you have shared openly your weaknesses, tender spots, and they deliberately use that to try to hurt you. Now, betrayal might only happen once, but by its nature, it has a long shelf life. And in response, you can become fearful and conclude that I will never again trust another person because I'm afraid of being betrayed again. If you're feeling like that today, you've got 11 other disciples who would totally get it. Now, the first two fears are implicit. The third one is explicit. In John 20, verse 19, it says that the disciples were behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, really meaning the Jewish leaders. They likely had the door closed tight. If, if there was no doorknob, they had a dresser shoved in front. If there was a doorknob, there was a chair underneath of it. They would have rejoiced if they had deadbolts and and chains, and motion detectors, and Dobermans, and eyeball scanners. After all, they knew what the Jewish leaders had done to their Messiah leader, their invincible leader, and they were painfully aware that they were neither Messiah-like nor invincible. Some had seen, others had only heard what happened to Jesus, but because they were followers of him, They were afraid of dying as well, and perhaps even in the same manner. Fear of death. It's a natural part of life, isn't it? Henry Nouwen, in one of his books, Our Greatest Gift, reflects on his 60th birthday party. When I was 40, I thought that this was just sage wisdom. I had my 60th birthday two months ago, and I'm not quite so sure but I'll share it with you anyway. He, he writes, being an old man, thanks a lot, Henri, means being closer to death. In past, I tried to figure out if I could still double the years I had lived. When I was 20, I was sure that I would at least live another 20. When I was 30, I felt I would easily reach 60. When I turned 40, I wondered if I would make it to 80. When I turned 50, I realized how few people make it to 100, but now at 60, I'm sure that I've gone far past the midway point of my life and that my death is much closer than my birth. Yeah. He has a point, doesn't he? When you're 20, you're invincible. When you're a teenager or a 20-something, you can't even conceive of dying. The older you get, the more you think about it. The more funerals of friends and family that you attend, or in my case, officiate, the closer it gets. 
And then those who have defined you, who have influenced you, who have entertained you, begin to pass away. And you feel this chill, shadow. I was struck by this a few months ago. I don't know why I did it, but uh, in one week, a number of key people passed away, and I entered it into my phone. For example, on Sunday of that week, Desmond Tutu died. Tuesday, Ben Morrison. Wednesday, John Madden. Friday, Betty White. And as those who have shaped us and entertained us pass away, we get the sense that we're being clicked up next in line. We begin to feel afraid, perhaps, of dying. And I think if we are honest, we need to admit that the past two, two and a half years have frightened or even terrified much of the world. The nightly news numbers of the number of infections and the number of deaths due to COVID have made us potentially traffic between being cautious on the one hand and absolutely terrorized on the other, depending on your personality. And in my world, and probably in your worlds, you're aware of people who are still imprisoned by that fear, the fear of death. So here's the disciples in the room, afraid of failure, afraid of betrayal, afraid of death as we might be today too. And then Jesus enters the room. Ironically, the disciples' fear that they had at that point only increased when Jesus came. Because there he was, without moving a dresser, picking a lock, or anything else, getting the chair from under the door. He is there in the room, larger than life. John says that the disciples were scared of the Jews before he appeared. Luke says they were both startled and frightened when he did appear. This second word, frightened, actually means to be terrified. And Luke does something interesting. He puts it in a passive voice in Greek, which means that the terror was acting on them rather than them deciding. Like, they didn't sit around and say, you know what, guys, I really think that it's about time that we had a panic attack. What do you think? No, it just overtook them, and they were helpless to do anything about it. You know what it feels like, that initial shot of adrenaline, right? And the chest tightens, and your, your ability to reason somehow flies away to the moon. And although your mouth is dry as sandpaper, the rest of you flushes and sweats. Because terror has a way of just bulldozing you. Oh, they were afraid of the Jews. When Jesus appeared, they were downright terrified. Why? Well, because they thought they were seeing a ghost. You can tell if you read the literature around that time and when you read the gospel accounts themselves that ghost sightings were somewhat familiar. Remember the day when the disciples were out in the boat and they see somebody walking on the water towards them and they go, it's a ghost. Common. Only this time the ghost was up close and personal. And, and whereas before they thought that they were safe because they, they had locked intruders out, they suddenly realized they had locked themselves in with a ghost. 
Jesus was recognizable, but they thought that he was dead and that this was his disembodied spirit, his ghost. But what Jesus does in these two chapters that we read parts of today in Luke and John is to address their fear by providing them with three words of hope. Three hopeful words. And if you find yourself in the fear category today, these may be words for you. Three hopeful words for fearful disciples. We'll work our way towards each one of them. Okay, we'll just take a trip to them. To me, Jesus goes to extraordinary lengths to prove that he had risen bodily. It's remarkable. After speaking to them so that they remember and recognize his voice, he gives them sensory proof that he has a body. There are four remaining senses. They'd heard them, that's one. There's four left, and he picks two of them that would give the best evidence that he's got a body. Uh, smell wouldn't work unless he had an aftershave that he used that they would recognize, but he didn't shave, so he didn't. So we're left with sight and touch. And then in Luke 24, he says in verse 39, See my hands and feet, touch me and see. Now you can imagine the 11 there looking at each other going, not me, and circling behind each other so that they're not the... the the one who has to go up and do it. Perhaps it was Peter the Brave who tentatively reaches towards what he hopes is Jesus' shoulder, and when he's about to touch him, he shuts his eyes for fear that he'll go through him and hit the wall. Instead, his hand hits flesh and bone, and he slowly smiles, and they marvel, and the rest of them breathe a sigh of relief giggle like little girls at the tension that has been cut and the marvel of what has happened. He's come back to life bodily because he passed the sensory test to prove it. Then he proposes what I would call the ingestion test to give further proof. In verse 41 he asks, have you got anything to eat? Personal opinion here only. I don't think that Jesus needed to eat anything because he had a resurrected body. Yet he asked for something to eat. And verse 42 says that they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it. And notice this. And he ate it. Okay. Now how did he do that? Before them. Why is it so important that Jesus didn't turn around and eat this way or go into the table or go in another room or go outside the door to do it? Well, because disembodied spirits do not eat. Take a piece of food, you put it in there, and it splats on the ground because there's nothing to hold it there. Jesus ate to prove that he had a body. Jesus, who came in the flesh, died in the flesh, resurrected in the flesh, demonstrating that he had the power to conquer anything up to and including death, and that death is not the end. There is bodily resurrection, and you will live on. Although they didn't really understand the implications of this at the time, they at least understood one, that they need not live in fear of death, because if their leader, their Messiah, could conquer death, they could conquer death. And there was hope that they didn't need to be afraid of death anymore.
That's the word of victory that he gives them. Death will not win, so you need not fear. It matured as they grew and understood what this really meant. So it's no surprise that in the book of Acts you have these formerly quaking disciples fearlessly announcing that the one the Jews had crucified, God had raised as Lord and Christ, and they did this despite threats to their lives because they didn't care if they died. They knew that nothing, including death, could affect them because they would be bodily resurrected themselves, Jesus being the first one to do it. A word of victory, not just Christ's, but ours today and every day. John writes, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. We're all going to die. But if you've accepted the resurrected Jesus Christ as your Savior, it means that when you became a Christian, you died and were risen again with him, the first resurrection that you had a part in, which means that eternal death has no power over you, you will serve and reign with him for a thousand years. What a victory over death now and in the future, so we need not live in fear. Bottom line, the resurrection of Jesus can set us free from the prison of fear. In the midst of their fears, Jesus also gave them a second word of hope. Earlier in John's Gospel, we see Jesus not only sending his Son, but empowering him with the power of the Holy Spirit. The crowds asked John the Baptist because they were so impressed with him, are, are you the Messiah? And he said, no, I'm not. And then in verse 32, he gives them markers that they could tell who the Messiah was. He upon whom the Spirit descends like a dove and remains on him, that's the Messiah. So the baptism of Jesus when the Holy Spirit came down, he's the Messiah. And throughout all of John, Jesus is pictured as just overflowing with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 34, John the Baptist says that he whom God has sent, who's Jesus, speaks the words for God, for God gives him the Spirit without limit. Wow. And now this same Jesus who was baptized with the Holy Spirit, who overflows with the Holy Spirit, is in the room with these disciples in resurrected form, full of the Holy Spirit. And he says to them in chapter, 22, chapter 20, verse 22, receive the Spirit. In English, it sounds like an invitation or a nice suggestion. In Greek, it's a command. Jesus says to the twelve, receive the Spirit. And their only response is, yes, sir. The challenge of it all is, what on earth does this mean? <laughs> Speculation abounds as to what it means that Jesus breathed on them and told them to receive the Spirit. In fact, it's probably one of the most controversial, if not the most controversial text in the book of John. 
great, we get to deal with it today. But I figure that the best way to handle it is to get back to basics of Bible interpretation. And one of the basics is context, context, context. So let's shrink the context back into the context of frightened disciples cloistered in a room hiding. What did receiving the Holy Spirit mean for these frightened men? Well, in 1 John, this same apostle who wrote the gospel makes this startling statement about those who have received the Holy Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 13, listen to what he says. I'm going to read it twice because it's so powerful. We know that we live in Christ and he is in us because he has given us his spirit. We know that we live in Christ and he is in us and we know that because he has given us his spirit. Can you see what that means? It means that when Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit onto his disciples, they received him. That he took up residence in them. It was the powerful presence of Jesus inhabiting his disciples. And that's the second word of hope. Word of presence. I am in you with all my power. Can you see the impact that this would have on fearful disciples if they could catch it? The same Jesus who had stirred up crowds and stared down storms, who did battle with demons and conquered them, did battle with diseases and cured them. The same Jesus whom death could not hold was now willingly entering into his disciples in the form of the Holy Spirit. The same power was, was now in them because the Son of God was not only with them, he was in them. And if you have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord today, the, this same Holy Spirit has taken residence in you as well. Romans 5, verse 5, Paul says, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit of God is in you. The Holy Spirit of Christ is in you if you are a Christian today with all of the power that you could read about that Jesus did in the scriptures and in history the resurrected Lord of the world lives in you so you need not fear. Bottom line, the resurrection of Jesus can set you free from the prison of fear. A final hopeful word for fearful disciples. We see it in John. Let's say that you, your telephone rings and, and you answer it and your friend says, hello. You say hi and you start to talk to them and you talk about a couple of things and then a few minutes later they go, hello. What? You already said that. Like, did you slip a cog or what, what is all of this about? And yet, that's exactly what happens here. Jesus joins them in the midst of their fear and says, 
peace be with you. It's a standard Jewish greeting, shalom, or shalom alechem. In fact, Paul begins 13 of his letters with that same thing, wishing peace. And once is fine, once is a greeting, once is gracious, it's expected. But then, what's weird here is that Jesus says it again, hello. The beginning of verse 21, peace be with you. That's twice. What is he doing? Well, he's offering them more than an extended greeting, that's for sure. But what is he doing? I'll admit that I don't know many of you very well at all yet. But given the names that I've read and some of the people that I've talked to, etc., I think there's a fairly large contingent of Dutch folks in this church. If you're Dutch, say amen. amen. Wow. Fairly large indeed. <laughs> now I'm guessing if you're Dutch today that you understand well the history of your country and are very aware of the sacrificial role that the Canadian Armed Forces played in liberating your country. Germany invaded the Netherlands May 10th, 1940 and had this oppressive occupation for one month short of five years. And the Canadian army almost single-handedly liberated this small nation. And we paid the price for Holland's freedom with the blood of our young men. Around 7,600 Canadian soldiers died there to offer peace to the people of that land. No more war, no more oppression, no more fear. Sacrifice and death was the price of peace. On Good Friday, no matter where we were, we noticed that the peace with God that Jesus offered to his disciples here was purchased through his death. It cost him his life. And, but because he died and rose victorious over sin and death, it meant that he could offer them peace with God because of forgiven sins. You don't need to be afraid of God. You don't need to be afraid of judgment because Jesus accomplished peace with God on your behalf. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead today, then this Prince of Peace offers you his peace today. Way back in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah the priest received word that he was going to be a father and as a part of his celebration of this announcement, he went into this great prophecy, some of it speaking about Jesus and listen to what he says about his coming. He said, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Now listen to what the Messiah will do. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He has done way more than guide us into that. He has given it to us through his death and resurrection. The word of peace I died to purchase your peace with my Father, so do not fear. Three hopeful words to fearful disciples. 
the word of victory, death will not win, so do not fear. The word of presence, I am living in you with all my power, so do not fear. And the word of peace, I have died to purchase peace for you with Almighty God. Don't be afraid of him or his judgment. Together they tell us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ can set us free from the prison of fear. Now many of you I probably believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But perhaps the implications of that have failed to penetrate that part of your life where you were held hostage by fear. The resurrection can change all that. It doesn't mean that you will never be afraid again, but it does mean that you need not be afraid again because the words of hope that Jesus gave to his disciples, he gives to you today as well. There are undoubtedly fears in this room of things and for reasons too numerous to list, but there's a good chance that you haven't brought the implications of the resurrection into contact with those fears, but we want to give you a chance to do that this morning. We're going to sing a song of invitation to the altar. And the invitation is for you to take these fears that have got you imprisoned and place them on the altar. Ask Jesus to take care of them for you because he has through his resurrection to have that resurrection power and reality set you free from fear. Perhaps you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. That means that you are not a participant in his resurrection and so you don't share in that kind of victory. It means that the Spirit of Christ that enters into Christians and is there with all of his power is not with you. And you have to deal with fears alone. It means that you do not have peace with God and so there is good reason to be afraid of God and his judgment. But you too could change that today. As we sing and invite you to come to the altar, you can have your sins forgiven at Jesus' invitation. And so I invite you as we sing to that our resurrected Lord, to pray that our resurrected Lord would defeat your fears and name what they are and that he would grant you his forgiveness and peace if you have never accepted it. Let's sing together. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.